0: Hey, how's it going everybody, this is Chris Welcome to episode 19 of The Essential X-Labs Where I think, if I'm not mistaken We might be wrapping up our first two-part X-Men story Trying to think back, have we had a two-parter yet? Huh, this might be the first one Unless I'm I'm forgetting an extremely obvious um, example This is it, so uh, yeah, let's get on into it This is X-Men number 13 at a September 1965 cover date The story is called Where Walks the Juggernaut Written and edited by Stan Lee With layouts by Jack Kirby Pencils come to us from Werner Roth Under the guise of Jay Gavin Inks Joe Sinnott Letters Sam Rosen Colors by uh, whoever it is be uh, Cover price 12 cents And this is the first issue of X-Men Under the Marvel Pop Art Productions uh, little, uh, little button banner thing there I don't know how long it'll last. I don't think it lasts terribly long. But, uh, let's get on into it here. We pick up right where we left off last issue. The Juggernaut has stood before Professor X, while the X-Men kind of just stand there in awe. Xavier sends the kids away, not wanting to endanger them further by, you know, standing them before his wicked stepbrother. Now Jean puts up a little bit of an argument, to which Xavier just calls her girl and tells her to do as she's told. And uh, he's going to refer to her simply as girl a few times during this issue Now with the X-Men out of the way Juggernaut gets in Xavier's face and explains that it took him years To pull himself free from that Sidorak temple in Korea And as mentioned last episode, that sounds almost heroic, right? Um, Now as he comes closer to the professor His sheer aura flips Charles' wheelchair over on its side Kane promises to destroy his stepbrother now and forever... Chuck is all not-so-fast, Kane Sabi, because I have my bodacious mutant brain. And with that, he zaps Jugs with a bolt of mental energy. And it staggers the baddie a bit, but doesn't actually bowl him over or anything. Now, it's here where Kane reveals that the crimson bands of Sidorak gave him his snazzy helmet, which also just so happens to protect him from psionic attacks. And speaking of attacks, at this point, Cyclops orders the X-Men to do just that. Marvel Girl uses her powers of teleport kinesis to hoist the baddie up. And, uh, it's called teleportation again. Uh, Remember, she could barely hold the beast up like an issue or two ago, so to hold the juggernaut up is, uh, lots of feat, isn't it? Cyclops then optic blasts deep into the floor, creating a very neat, tidy, and deep canyon in the Xavier living room. Gene dumps the lump down the hole Buying the X-Men precious few seconds to get their stuff together Now Bobby, he decides to drop a pumpkin-sized ice block down the hole As a forget-me-not to Juggernaut You know, like, instead of just filling the entire hole with ice He just throws a, throws a ball down there What are you gonna do? Xavier is helped back to his chair by Angel And asks Gene to come with him to his lab So he can put on his... Mento helmet Wow, another Doom Patrol thing in an X-book Now DC's Mento helmet first appeared in Doom Patrol number 91 That had a November 1964 cover date, so nearly a year before this issue came out Granted, I mean, it's not exactly the most creatively named thingamabob So I don't think we can say that this was a blatant copy And I mean, it's the Mento helmet People like us are the only ones who will notice this or even care So, now, you might be asking, what exactly is a Mento helmet? And what can it do? At least in the Marvel Universe, what the hell's a Mento helmet? Well, here's the thing. It can intensify Xavier's brainwaves, making them even more powerful than they already are. With every second that Xavier wears the dopey thing, the power coils charge and empower him. So much so that the psionic power actually overflows leading him to have to, like, release it so his head doesn't pop, kind of like a uh, like a pressure valve here. And, I mean, this whole thing kind of seems stupid and pointless, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Meanwhile, back in the hole, we get a page of Juggernaut basically playing Dig Dug to get himself out. Like, these panels literally look like Dig Dug. You, you almost gotta see him to believe it. Uh, now, Cyclops is just firing a steady shot of his cursed optic blast into the hole, which... I mean, after, like, a minute of seeing this having no effect on their foe might make a more well-adjusted superhero decide to try a different tack. Now, Jugs dig-dugs through, and he bursts through the floor right under our nearsighted hero. From here, we go into full-blown horror movie mode, where the Juggernaut slowly, slowly stalks our heroes, and, and it must be, I, I can't emphasize this enough, it is very, very slow. Now, Cyclops is nearly pinned down until Angel reminds him that, uh, hey, you know what, Scotty? You've got legs. Maybe you ought to try and maybe kick the bad guy. And so he does. But, I mean, it's the Juggernaut, so it's not all that effective. Though it is somehow effective enough to nudge the baddie back far enough for Scott to pull himself back up to his feet, which is a, uh, a pretty crazy thing now, isn't it? Scott and Warren then attempt a very sad dog pile on the Juggernaut, which looks like, uh, like when a pair of toddlers hang off like, their father's arms or legs or something as he walks. It's, it's very cute. Back to the Mento helmet. Now we see Xavier's mental energy releasing all over the city. Now we have an airplane pilot feeling a weird message as he flies over the city, but not through their radio. We jump over to the Teen Brigade, who also feel this psychic message, but just not through their ham radios. And now the Teen Brigade was formed by Rick Jones in Incredible Hulk No. 6 as a network of, uh, well, teens who, uh, via the use of their ham radios, attempt to help the world in any way they can. Then in a New York courtroom, one Matt Murdock also hears this message, but he's stuck working a trial, so he can't Daredevil up to check it out. And, you know, we don't often see Daredevil in the X-Books, so this is uh, pretty neat. I don't think we'll see him again until, like... 1996 or something like that It's uh, right after Operation Zero Tolerance I think it's like a Cecilia Reyes story And uh, I know Daredevil takes part in that So that might be The next time we see him in an X-book We go back to the mansion Where Gene suggests that they uh, take Xavier and run You know, let's get out of here Let's get him to safety But Chuck refuses to leave Fearing that Kane will just destroy the city if they do Xavier then dispatches Bobby and Hank to help Warren and Scott slow the juggernaut's path of rage And it's crazy to consider that the professor was cool with, like, just Scott and Warren Holding the juggernaut off up until now It's like, just two little weaselly kids here, right? Then again, they kind of are his, uh, you know, main rivals for the affections of Jean Grey, right? So maybe there was a method to his madness Uh, Then Jean asks what she can do Can I go too? To which, Chuck simply refers to her as girl again, and tells her to cool her jets, because she'll eventually get her chance to disappoint him as well. Back to the horror movie playing out in the living room, the uh, Juggernaut slowly, slowly makes his way toward the staircase. Warren is riding him piggyback, while Scott continuously releases an optic blast right into Juggy's head. I mean, it hasn't worked for the first 500 times, but what are you going to do? Kane finally snapped Mare's Angel over right into Cyclops' blast. He then goes to grab Scott, but the floor turns to ice because the cavalry has arrived. Back to Xavier, who is still mentoring out. He manages to get his distress call out to Johnny Storm, who was uh, just about to test drive a friend's hot rod while wearing his Fantastic Four costume, so I guess he's really proud of it, or maybe that's the only way we would know it was him, I don't know. Anyway, Johnny doesn't immediately trust the weird psychic message he's receiving, and so he sort of breaks off contact. Yeah, he's, he's kind of worried that it's a trick, because Reed had warned him to be extra careful right now because we're in the lead-up to the big wedding. And our footnote here informs us that the wedding will be taking place in uh, Fantastic Four Annual number 4. It's actually Fantastic Four number 3, and... Uh, This is why we don't edit our own footnotes there, Stanley Um, And we will be discussing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 next episode The uh, X-Men do play a fairly prominent role in it And it's also just such a seminal and important moment in Marvel history So I I figured we should cover it in depth So back to the mansion Um, Xavier informs Gene that he made contact with the Human Torch But it was broken off So here's my question Is Xavier wearing the Mento helmet to intensify his powers to deal with the Juggernaut himself? Or to send out a psychic distress call? Because if it's the latter, I mean, we've already seen that the X-Men are part of like a superhero radio network where they can get in touch with the Avengers or Fantastic Four whenever they need to. So why does he need to Mento out here? Uh, Oh well. Xavier tells Gene that he's going to try to contact the torch again because he absolutely needs his power to take down Cain. Speaking of whom, let's go back to the horror show. Iceman has fully encased the Juggernaut in a cube of ice. Any guesses what happens next? Well, just like any time Iceman encases someone in a block of ice, Juggernaut shatters his way out of it. Beast then literally bounces in, ping-ponging all over the hallway, bouncing off walls and Juggernaut himself. And it's about as effective as you might imagine Which is to say, not at all Hank then lands on Kane's head And attempts to put him in a headlock And, I mean, Juggernaut's wearing that big old helmet Like There's like no neck there, right? So it's not like Hank can hope to cut off an airway or something It's just, uh, just for looks, I guess Kane grabs the barefoot beast by his bare foot And slams him into the ground He then karate chops Hank's Achilles Which really takes some spring out of his step Henry crawls away, luring the Juggernaut into a very special and dangerous room. Now, once Kane's inside, Hank triggers the danger room into action. Juggernaut is, unsurprisingly, able to hold his own in the danger room, even sending many of the obstacles and, you know, dangers right back at Hank. Now, while they continue doing their thing, let's let's hop back to Johnny Storm. Now, Xavier manages to get through to him again, and this time he's able to convince him to head to the mansion to help out. Meanwhile, Xavier and Jean have thrown in with the rest of the goofs in fighting off the juggernaut Jean once again teleport kinetically, lifts Cain off the ground But then the human torch swoops in Chuck instructs him to fly in circles around the juggernaut's head Really, that's, that's it Charles then wakes the angel and instructs him to fly in circles around the juggernaut's head Now, by now, the torch has moved on to releasing a burst of fiery light which temporarily blinds the baddie. Now, while Kane fumbles and stumbles around, Warren swoops back in and... snatches the helmet right off of Marco's dome. Finally, no longer protected by his psionic shield, Xavier levels his stepbrother with a wallop of mental hoo-ha. Juggernaut hits the ground and, uh... well, we don't know what happens to him next. Now, as the dust settles here, uh, does anybody have any guesses as to how Professor X expresses his gratitude to the Human Torch? You know, the guy who trusted the creepy bald man in his head to uh, come to the mansion and help out? Well, it is the Silver Age, so if you guessed Mind Wipe, then you win the pony. Now, a clueless, well, even more clueless, Johnny Storm flies away not knowing where he's been or what he'd been doing. And we close out with the four boys being waited on by Nurse Jean, Xavier promises the fellas a gift when they get better. And that gift is brooms so they can clean up the mess that the mansion's been left in. Waka, waka, waka. That's where we leave it. Next episode, possibly the biggest Marvel event of its time, the wedding of Sue Storm and Reed Richards. And now into our always amusing letters page here. We're going to start with a letter from Larry in New York. He claims that he was very scared when Cyclops asked Xavier if the X-Men would have to disband back in X-Men Number Eleven, but was wildly relieved when Xavier said no. He asks how Cyclops opens his visor, and uh, that's just asking for a lot of panels of Cyclops in uh, partial visor rising, and uh, yeah, we'll be getting a lot of that in the next several episodes here. Um, back to Larry, he uh, thought that the cover of Issue Eleven featured some bad coloring. Said the faces were left just plain white and not skin-toned Though he doesn't mention that the art was just, like, plain ugly Because, oof, that was an ugly cover Uh, He wants to know how Xavier gets away with working with the X-Men in secret Despite, like, always being seen with them That's a pretty great question Now Stan promises to talk about Sykes' visor later And boy, will he And he has no excuse for having Xavier seen with the X-Men all the time, and offers a double-sized no-prize to anyone who can offer a decent explanation. Orrin in Colorado. More coloring queries here. He asks why the stranger's beard was green on page 3, panel 5. It's like, really? Uh, He also wants more of the stranger, to which I say, really? (laughs) Do you? Um, Now, Stan points out that the stranger's beard is not green in the mag. And I checked the Marvel Unlimited version since those are the only color versions I've got access to And I can confirm that Stan is right So maybe Orin just has a dirty copy Philip in Pennsylvania Loved X-Men number 11 Refers to it as, quote The most unique story, plot, and art in all of literature Wow Um, He says Magneto is the best villain that Marvel's got So he's sure he'll be back eventually And he suggested he might send Stan a hacksaw to free himself from the typewriter that he's chained to. Stan confirms that he's not chained to a typewriter. He actually is a typewriter. So uh, you heard it here first. Gary in California. Now you remember how all those letters were telling Stan that they were tired of Magneto and the Brotherhood and that they should go? Well, just like clockwork, soon as he's gone, people are trying to figure out ways to get him back. Now, Gary simply suggests that Magneto, Toad, and Mastermind escape the Stranger. Okay, easy enough, right? Though Gary must have forgotten that the last time we saw Mastermind, he was stuck in like a statue form at the X-Mansion. He didn't actually go with Magneto or Toad. Now, he suggests that when Mags comes back, he draft two new mutants to replace Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, and he warns that this shouldn't happen for at least five issues. That way, everyone will have already forgotten about Magneto. Okay, pal. Stan's reply is, well, classic Stan. He, he worries that uh, not only will the fans forget about Magneto, but uh, he's afraid he will, too. So, there's that. Eddie in Texas. He loved issue 11, and he compared The Stranger to The Watcher. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, my first ever experience with The Watcher and The Stranger was through the Marvel Universe Series 3 card set, where they were both, like, in the Cosmic Entities subset so, I think I always subconsciously compared them as well, along with like Eternity and the Living Tribunal and Ego, of the Living Planet, and a slew more that were in that little subset. Now, Eddie's happy that Magneto is gone. He claims that uh, he was never attracted to him. You get it? Magnet attraction? Well, um, okay. Uh, he wonders if Professor X is a fugitive, explaining why he's always running from the police. Now, Stan replies that a lot of folks wrote in to compare The Stranger to The Watcher, and he wonders if he'll ever put them in a story together. And, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but it almost certainly happened. Uh, Maybe someone can fill me in, so, uh, we know which book to avoid in the future. (laughs) Next up, Raja in Massachusetts. He's very pleased about Cap's cookie quartet And also about how Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch Have officially crossed over onto the good guy's side And he thinks that this new Avengers team Is going to be a lot of fun Now As for the X-Men Roger thinks Magneto is a cornball And he's happy to see him gone He likes the X-Men's personalities uh, And claims that This is an odd claim He uh, claims that Angel talks a lot like Jack Kirby I... 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 Hmm... I don't know Maybe... Okay... Uh, He also suggests giving Angel a war cry. Now, um, if you were to give Angel a war cry, what would it be? What would it be? Um, I I can't think of one off the top of my head because, uh, frankly, I don't think he needs one. But Roger, he suggests flaps up, which is uh, only mildly perverted, I suppose. Maybe I'll start interjecting that into my own uh, vernacular here. Uh, When I'm about to do something, I'll say flaps up, and then I'll probably be arrested or something, I don't know. Uh, Next up, Guy in California. All he can say about X-Men number 11 is, wow, but still spends about four paragraphs to express that thought. Finally, Pedro in Australia. He comments at how crazy it is for people with such low IQs as Stan and Jack To be able to put out such great comics He comes to us with a question, though Uh, He asks how Warren was able to hide his wings from his parents for his entire life And Stan promises to explain it all just as soon as he figures it out himself And uh, indeed, it won't be too long before we get a scene which fully explains how Warren was able to hide his wings Next up, the proto-Bullpen Bulletins, also known as Important Announcements or something like that Um... Let's see, Marvel annuals for 1965 are all the rage. Uh, the Fantastic Four features the wedding, and that we will be getting to next episode. Spider-Man's going to meet up with Doctor Strange. Thor is going to fight Hercules. Uh, not sure if it's the first time they met, but uh, if so, it'll be the first of several thousand uh, fights between the two. Uh, Sergeant Fury will feature the Korean War. And Marvel Tales gets an annual, which features a reprint of X-Men number one. Also a story from Amazing Adult Fantasy and some other stuff. Uh, in other news, Stan thanks the Village Voice for their kind write-up on Marvel. And finally, Merry Marvel marchers have received Marvel stationery and T-shirts as part of their memberships. And there is a coupon included on the letters page here if you want to join the MMMS, along with instructions for who to make the check or money order out to. Only thing missing is they don't tell us how much to make the check out for. But lucky for all of us here, I have access to, uh... Well, the original scans of these issues here, so I was able to find the actual Merry Marvel bullpen page here, which does tell us how much to make these uh, money orders out for. If you want to buy an X-Men T-shirt from the Merry Marvel Marches, that'll set you back one dollar and fifty cents. Stationery is only a buck, but uh, everything you order, you need to send an extra fifteen cents. For uh, shipping and handling So if you're interested, I'm sure operators are still standing by Um, Now we'll wrap up here with the mighty Marvel checklist here Other books coming out with this same cover date include Fantastic Four number 43 And that features the dramatic fate of the thing And the startling secret of the human torch Neither of those things I remember Uh, Spider-Man 29 features the scorpion showing up again Avengers number 20 promises to answer the question, what befalls the swordsman? Daredevil number 9, uh, D.D. heads to another country and invades a castle. Thor 120 features the return of the Absorbing Man. Strange Tales 137, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. vs. Hydra. You know, like basically every Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story. And Doctor Strange confronts the Ancient One. Tales of Suspense number 7, the Iron Man vs. Titanium Man, and Captain America has a dilemma. Tales to Astonish 72 features Adam Austin art on Submariner. I don't know who Adam Austin is. Um, but Hulk's story, it needs to be seen to be believed. They, they, words cannot even express what happens in this Hulk story. Which is to say, um, probably nothing, or Stan hasn't written it, or maybe Stan wrote it and he forgot. It's probably one of those. Uh, finally, Sgt. and Fury number 22 is World War II's Plosti? um P-L-O-E-S-T-I However you pronounce that, Air Raid And it features Nick Fury and Bull McGivney I don't know who that last one is, but uh, I'm sure he's important So with all that out of the way, what did we think about this issue? Um, I quite enjoyed it, I thought it was a lot of fun uh, I mean, it's going to become like a meme It's uh, you know silly but fun That's how you explain most of these stories, right? Uh, We look at things like Professor X putting on the Mento helmet to... Well, we thought he was going to do it so he can amplify his power, so he can, like, penetrate through the Juggernaut's helmet. But then it turned out to be something different, wherein, like, his brain became so overloaded it had to release before his head popped. But then that was, like, the goal all along, because he was trying to reach the Human Torch for some reason, um... When they have, like, that little radio gimmick that we saw a couple of episodes ago where the X-Men can contact any superheroes and ask for help, I mean, that's a little weird, a little silly. Um, but, you know, I got handed to Stan. He is, a, uh, he is a salesman, and there is a mighty big Fantastic Four story that I'm sure he wants in as many hands as possible, right? The, the wedding between Reed and Sue which really is such a pivotal moment in the shared Marvel Universe. It's a pretty big deal here, and I mean, it's hard to kind of look at that in hindsight and consider it as big a deal as it probably was at the time, but uh, I think we can all agree that it is an important moment. So Stan wants to make sure that people know that this thing is coming out. Unfortunately, he puts the wrong issue number in the footnote, so... uh, I mean, there's only one Fantastic Four annual a year, so uh, if, if you see one that has a cover that says, you know, it's all here—the wedding of Reed and Sue—you're probably not going to question much. I really dug the uh, horror movie vibe we got here. Where, I mean, Juggernaut is just taking his time here. He's playing with his food basically. He's not in a big rush. You know, he's uh, slowly, slowly stalking these uh, these dopey kids and just having fun with them. It's—I uh, thought this was really cool. It makes him like a different sort of villain Because all the other villains we've seen so far have been, you know, in your face You know, if we're going to fight, we fight right now And Juggernaut just didn't seem to uh, prioritize fighting quite as much He's just like, yeah, I'm going to beat you I'm going to beat you eventually It doesn't matter to me when I'm just going to, you know, take my time and uh, enjoy every every minute of this And perhaps my favorite part of this was that it was a two-part story You know, um, everything we've seen so far have been single-issue stories, of course, with continuity, right? Um, If the X-Men got beat up, they're still licking their wounds at the beginning of the next issue, but it's not like a straightaway, you know, part two of two sort of a situation like we have here, and uh, that's a trend that's not going to go away, really. Um, After we get back from the Fantastic Four annual, we're going to actually kick off a three-part storyline featuring the Sentinels. So... I think we're getting into longer-form storytelling, and uh, I really dig that. Um, I'm pretty sure the fans of the day probably weren't too keen on it, considering how, you know, they had to depend on newsstands to get their books here. So if you get the first part, you might not get the second, or you might have missed the first and only found the second. So I can see the fans of the mid 60s being like wait what are we doing here <laughs> you know i want my i want a beginning middle and end in every single issue but uh for us more uh well not much more contemporary but relatively speaking more <laughs> contemporary readers uh this is a uh, this is a hallmark of comics that we're going to be seeing forevermore the uh multi-part story arc and part of me wonders if uh, stan's going to get any clap back for doing this and uh I say that with, like, one raised eyebrow because I know there will be some clapback to this uh, in the next several uh, letters pages. But we'll get there when we get there. Uh, One last thing about the art here. This is the first time we're seeing uh, Jay Gavin or uh, Werner Roth on pencils under Jack's uh, layouts here. And I quite liked it. Um, Nothing against Jack. We've talked about Jack Kirby's work and how it's—I'm kind of hot and cold on it. It's not my favorite, but I don't hate it either. It's just kind of there— but I think in the last few issues that he was penciling on his own, it was feeling kind of apparent that maybe he didn't have the time for this book. Because, I mean, that that issue with The Stranger uh, immediately pops out as just not being all that pleasant to look at. And it's hard to hold that against Jack, right? He was probably drawing uh, in the triple digits of pages every month, right? He was just drawing so many comic pages and... As deadlines loom and as just you know being overworked you know kicks in, you might take a few shortcuts here. You might make it a little bit looser. You may leave out some backgrounds. It's a, I mean, it's just it's a necessity when you're that overworked. So I'm happy that he's still on layouts, but I'm also happy that we are getting a penciler who can maybe dedicate more time and care to each issue of X-Men uh, moving forward. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue And I think that's about all we got for the show today uh, I do want to mention one thing before I get into the plugs here uh, Last episode, I had put in a, uh, something I called a plea for dissent um, Where I explained that I got a pretty awful <laughs> and harmful review on uh, iTunes from a listener And basically put it out there that if uh, our opinions don't line up, that's okay and uh, maybe reach out so we can enter into a dialogue or a discussion rather than running off to a review aggregate trying to, you know, hurt my show, hurt the thing that I spend so much time, energy, passion, and love on, you know. There's got to be a more constructive way to have these conversations, right, is uh, what I was getting at here. And I had actually broken that little snippet out of the show and made a little weird uh, social media video gimmick thing just in case... People don't listen to the show. They might not listen to The Essentials. You know, it's it was just a way to get it out there, so it was out there. And I tell you what, um, the outpouring of support and kindness that I got from folks when I shared that... Uh, it was almost hard for me to take um, I was uh, so taken aback um, It's so easy to fall into um, the negative When something like that were to happen It it does get under your skin And it might make you forget about all the good And only focus on the bad And I got a firm reminder that there's a lot of good And there are folks that do appreciate this program And uh, at the risk of being a little too precious It did Choked me up a bit So I want to thank everyone for their kind words um, it, it, was not a, it was not a fun weekend <laughs> So uh, it really means a lot to me That there are folks out there Who uh, are willing to be kind To uh, some idiot behind a microphone So thank you all so much and uh, if there's anyone out there who would like to get a hold of me, you could find me a few different places. Still on Twitter for now. You can find me at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can head to Chris's on Infinite Earth for blog posts and show notes. And you can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for all the Chris and Reggie archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the Internet sends noise. And hey, uh, only if you want to. Uh, I'm I'm taking good reviews if you think I deserve one. I would appreciate uh, any help I can get in that uh, arena at the moment. But that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.